Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Rappencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week, we told you about kittens in the national park system, mountain lion kittens specifically, and the five litters that were found in and around the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area this year. We also brought you up to date on efforts by the Federal Aviation Administration and the National Park Service to develop air tour management plans for nearly two dozen national parks and the release of funding that will help complete improvements to the Tamiami Trail through Everglades National Park that will allow the river of grass to flow unimpeded to Florida Bay. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we take a look at the outdoor recreation industry and how it has been impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. Overall, the industry has been hard hit, but there are some bright spots to look at. We also take a look at the upcoming fundraiser for Outdoor Afro. Yosemite National Park Ranger Shelton Johnson will host the fundraiser for the organization that inspires and facilitates the connection of Black Americans to natural spaces everywhere. The traveler's Lynn Riddick checked in with Outdoor Afro's Yanita Castro to learn about the event and also more about this nonprofit organization. Through a network of thoughtfully curated leaders who organize a wide variety of outdoor adventures, Outdoor Afro is changing the visual representation in natural spaces while promoting black history and environmental stewardship. Few sectors of the economy have been hit harder by the coronavirus pandemic than the outdoor recreation industry. Within that industry, you have RV manufacturers and operators of RV campgrounds, fishing tackle manufacturers, even the guides who help you climb mountains or raft rivers through the national park system. The Outdoor Recreation Roundtable is the country's leading coalition of outdoor recreation trade associations and organizations working to promote the growth of the outdoor recreation economy and outdoor recreation activities. According to that organization, the outdoor recreation industry was ranked in May by the U.S. Census Bureau as the second most coronavirus-impacted industry, next to the food and accommodation sectors. Overall, the outdoor recreation industry was hit 31% harder than the national average. We're joined today by Jessica Turner, Executive Director of the Roundtable, and Lindsay Davis, the organization's Vice President, to discuss the current state of the outdoor industry. Welcome to The Traveler, ladies. Thank you. Now, before we get into the numbers, could, could you paint a picture for our listeners of who the Outdoor Recreation Roundtable represents? Sure. Um, We represent all of the trade associations in the outdoor recreation space. So 32 national trade associations covering all of the activities, uh, boating, fishing, hiking, biking, skiing, snowmobiling, uh, scuba diving, anything outdoor recreation related, uh, you name it. They are our association members and they represent over 110,000 outdoor businesses. So it's really the business space of the recreation economy. 
And when you talk about that industry, um, it's not just a trade association. I mean, it goes all the way down to the, I guess, the, the mom and pop uh, cabin rentals or uh, the the small um, guiding outfits that might take you on a nature hike in a, in a national park. Yep, everything, um, service providers, small guides and outfitters, mom and pop campground operators, all of those businesses are part of the associations that we uh, work with and coordinate and represent. Yeah. Now, this past week, you released some pretty sobering statistics that illustrate the struggles your industry has endured this year. Lindsay, why do you think this sector of the economy was hit so hard by the pandemic? Um, well, there's been sort of a perfect storm of factors this year, which is that, uh, you know, we had all of the, the normal business impacts with supply chain issues and revenue and retail being shuttered. But at the same time, the, the backbone of our industry, in infrastructure and public lands were also closed. So uh, there were just a, a multitude of, um, of issues that we faced, some of which, you know, because many of our businesses were deemed non-essential early on. Uh, and then on a state-by-state -state basis, we saw a lot of our other infrastructure and campgrounds and stuff like that be rolled up into statewide closures. So overall, we just kind of got hit at, at every angle. Yeah, and I guess um, that, that hit was so intense because many of your businesses are, are seasonal in nature, right? Yes, exactly. So for, for a lot of guides and outfitters, um, the, the spring and summer months are, are the busiest time of year and when they capture uh, the most revenue. So those were um, unfortunately really key key months for our businesses that, um, that we, they really weren't recovered from it. Even some that you know, have seen upticks since then in sales, there's, there's no way that it's going to replace what the losses have been for most in 2020. Yeah, I was wondering about that because what struck me in the statistics you released was that this past August, just 22% of the businesses in your industry reported an increase in sales compared to a year ago, and that 65% said business was off. That That's a pretty staggering number. Now, is there concern that not everyone in your industry will survive this economic blow and return next year? Is that safe to say? There's definitely concern. I mean, we were thrilled to see these numbers hit the page, honestly, even though it's still a pretty grim outlook. These are the first trends and upticks that we've seen since the pandemic hit. So even though they're still pretty extreme numbers, it's heartening to see them on the rise in at least some categories, because before in our last two surveys, they were just on kind of a continual downward trend, as you can see in some of the, the graphics on the dashboard that coincides with this data. But the, the impact has definitely not been um, consistent or the same throughout all of the different sectors that exist in the ORR membership. And, and it's because of some of those seasonalities that you referenced before, you know, it's like the, the guides and outfitters, they had, um, you know, some of them, uh, summer camps, they just, some of them chose not to open at all because the, the patterns of openings and closures and same with guides and outfitters, it's been really difficult for, you know, small businesses that make up the majority of our industry to decide whether they're going to take the risk of rehiring and then um, end up having to close because of governor restrictions a few weeks later. And so that, that yo-yo effect has been really tough on small businesses. Yeah. And I guess in, yeah, and I think I, I just, add to that, but also the supply chain being off, um, 
you know, even non-seasonal businesses, even if the demand is there and the consumer demand, there's still supply chain problems from having manufacturing shut down for a couple months, obviously from shipping things, shipments from overseas and shipments from China, things are off. So even in high demand sectors that aren't as seasonally impacted, you have a host of supply chain issues and the added cost of running a business in the COVID area. So social distancing, um, cleaning, uh, keeping customers and workforce safe and healthy. There's a lot of additional costs to that. And a lot of recreation businesses, especially small ones, aren't running with huge margins to cover those costs and, you know, take into account all the things that Lindsay just spoke about. Yeah, that, that's a good point you bring up, Jessica. And, I, and I'm curious, I mean, the, the outdoor retailer show this summer, I think, was canceled. It was turned into a virtual show. But you talk about supply chain and a, a lot of those goods that are, you know, the manufacturers hope the retailers will, will buy to sell in their stores come from overseas. Any idea how how those um, supply chains have been impacted and, and will that be reflected in, in what we see in, in outdoor stores this uh, this fall and winter? Lizzie, you want to take, yeah, I think, Lizzie, do you want to take that one because you have some of the data from just supply chains, how bad they've been impacted? So, I'm sorry, were you saying that are we going to see um, continued impact in retail looking forward as we look into the next seasons of outdoor rec? Yeah, because of the the impact on the supply chains um, that has affected the outdoor um, recreation industry. I mean, the outdoor retailer show is a, a twice a year. I call it the, the the greatest adult toy show in the world because if you're into outdoor recreation, you can go there if you're a buyer or your media, and you know just tents and clothing and sleeping uh, sleeping bags and and paddling boats and and all that outdoor gear. Is that going to be impacted by supply chain slowdowns and and what the retailers have to offer this fall and winter? Yeah, you know, I know that there are really, uh, our members are very concerned about the impact that virtual trade shows are going to have on on 2021, you know, even for people like the the boating industry and National Marine Manufacturers Association, they're doing really well right now, but 50% of their revenue for their business members comes from those shows. Uh, so even though there's great sales right now, uh, there's, there's uncertainty and instability looking forward. And uh, people are having a really hard time being able to get their inventory here, you know, and for, I think both RV and boat manufacturers, you know, things are almost nearly complete, ready to go to a dealer, but there's maybe a few pieces that are missing that have them kind of held up. And so those, those inconsistencies are really tough for businesses. I, I think the ski industry is experiencing something similar. I know with DPS here in Salt Lake, I uh, was on a panel with um, one of their folks last week, and he was saying, you know, how difficult it's been to manage inventory looking forward. So I don't know, you know, the the specifics on um, retail as far as clothing and apparel and and where people are at with um, the typical kind of seasonal buys that are happening and if, if they're really set up with all of their samples. But what might be voting well for the industry now is that you know, fall was already established in spring or the winter before. So we might be in that kind of grace period um, where we're okay for this fall and this winter because there's so, you know, that those design processes and sample orders 
sometimes start, you know, two years ahead of time. Um, so those lags we might see more into 20, 2021 as far as people having, you know, like the next year's designs ready to go this fall and winter. Yeah. We're talking today with Jessica Turner, the Executive Director of the Outdoor Recreation Roundtable, and Lindsay Davis, the organization's Vice President, about the current state of the industry in light of the coronavirus pandemic. We'll be right back after a short break. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Now, ladies, one thing I was wondering about is, have you been able to measure a trickle-down effect to other segments of the economy? Um, Many gateway towns to national parks are built around the outdoor recreation industry. Have you seen any anecdotal evidence or or hard statistics on how they've been impacted by this? Yeah, there's there's a lot of articles and, and some data, you know, on county unemployment that we've been trying to dig into, but it does look different, I think, across different types of recreation communities. So, you know, Appalachian Trail communities obviously struggling in the spring and early summer months because they were saying, please don't through hike the Appalachian Trail. You know, right. we don't have the capacity in these communities to handle the healthcare needs and and um, handle, you know, what might be coming through in terms of, of outbreaks in the virus. But at the same time, you know, I think every industry was suffering during those months. So I think it's sort of unfair to see, um, you know, a couple articles come out and say, oh, you know, maybe recreation is not as recession proof as possible. We're not talking about a recession. We're talking about things were closed and people were saying, don't come here. And communities were, were saying, we don't, you know, we don't want you to leave your local community to recreate. So it's not that there wasn't a desire and there wasn't a demand and people weren't prioritizing that in those months. It's that literally parks were closed and manufacturing was closed. I think as things started to open, we see those unemployment numbers change a little bit and we see recreation communities and towns do pretty well and fare pretty well um, during this, uh, you know, the summer months as things started to uptick. I think we'll always have a problem with tourism-based communities, whether they're tourism-based communities because recreation or because of something else when people aren't flying. So I think we'll continue to see, you know, interesting numbers there, but we're also seeing more people uh, take their summer vacation as the great American road trip to a park or a forest or campgrounds, as opposed to flying abroad or, you know, flying to some exotic place uh, across the world. So we're, we're seeing two different things happening at the same time. One is 
less airline travel, obviously. The other is potentially more RV, car, motorcycle, you know, family trip travel. Um, and, and I think we'll probably have better data on that when BEA releases its statistics next year on the recreation economy. We'll be able to look at that and dive into you know, what states are seeing. But for now, we feel that we're pretty resilient. You know, people are prioritizing recreation at a time where they don't have a lot of other things to look forward to or, you know, are unemployed. They're still getting outside and they're feeling that that's a healthy way to spend time with their family. It's a great way to mitigate the spread of the virus because being outdoors obviously is better than being inside. So I think there's a lot um, on our side with this, but you can't, you know, have a broad sweeping uh, statements that, you know, all recreation economies are resilient because some really do depend on, you know, in Alaska, and if people aren't flying, you know, that community might be uh, impacted a lot more. Sure, sure. You, you know, and while there has been um, some economic pain across your sectors, there have been some positive signs out there as well. Um, fishing license sales have been up. Uh, participation in day hiking is up. RV sales are very strong. What can we draw from these segments of your industry? Is there any indication that these are signs of evolving long-term trends towards more participation in outdoor recreation? We certainly hope so. Um, Yeah, sure. I mean, one thing that um, we have been hearing from our members is that, you know, a lot of these purchases are not small purchases. Buying a boat or an RV is a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big commitment to um, you and your family's life in the outdoors and your dedication to camping. So we've been looking at those trends um, and and thinking uh, this is a great thing to be ha- to have happening in our industry. You know that's not necessarily a, a fickle um, a fickle purchase. So I think that's indicative of people, for one, realizing that the the effects that uh, the pandemic have had on trips and travel are long term, you know, they're not just going to sort of be gone next month and that we have to do things that are going to, um, you know, make changes in our families and our lives that are going to have that same lasting impact in a positive way. And then also, I think, you know, there's been not only the uh, recreational boating and fishing, they have been tracking not only people who are new and return new new fishing license sales, but also people who are returning to it. So I think that um, we're also seeing people sort of rediscover the outdoors if it was in their life lives before, you know, maybe they have new reason now to um, rekindle it or bring it back into their family structure or their social structure in ways that is is really positive for all of us. So I think, you know, that coinciding with these tremendous pieces of legislation that have been passed this year with Great American Outdoors Act. Like it, it really does bode well for the future of our industry. Jessica always says like these are the conditions that, with the exception of the virus and the issues and supply chain, uh, the, the the participation and the the investment in outdoor recreation infrastructure that that's happening right now is the context that we've always dreamed of. Now, in light of the the down numbers, you know, the, the 65% of the businesses that said uh, their, their sales were off, is there a need for an aid package from Congress? And, and if so, what should it look like? Any thoughts on that, Jessica? 
Yeah, so we've been pushing, you know, we did get some uh, adjustments that were super helpful in the CARES 2 Act and even some adjustments by Treasury and Small Business Association to help our seasonal businesses who weren't able to qualify for the PPP loan program at the offset. Um, but really what's needed now is fee relief for all of the businesses that um, are paying fees to operate or lease or have permits on public lands. Um, those fees are based on you know, a uh, uh, suggested revenue that they think these businesses are going to make, and they're not reaping that revenue, and they have additional costs. So the agencies agree that fee relief is important. We need that to be done um, congressionally. Same with contract term extensions. You know, a lot of concessionaires, campground operators, marina operators are in contracts, and they need to make back the money that they've invested in a certain amount of time. Well, they haven't had that opportunity this year. So an extension of that contract one to two years would allow them to gain back their investment, you know, hopefully with things back to normal pretty soon. And then the last piece is, you know, how do we look at all this infrastructure and all the great things that are happening with Great American Outdoors Act, all the people that are out on our federal lands, the additional usage, how run down, you know, some of our agency workforce are being on the front lines. How do we employ young people, diverse uh, people from diverse backgrounds and communities and veterans, through a conservation course. So really looking at bringing back that CCC of 100 years ago and saying, how do we not only just invest in public lands and waters at a time where the usage is so high and the demand is so high, but let's put people to work, young people, and create the next generation of outdoor stewards, get people off unemployment and, you know, in a place where they can easily uh, swing into federal jobs or jobs with the private sector. So I think there's a ton more... Congress can do to help this industry. And I think those, you know, small tweaks on fees and contracts would be huge and, and beneficial. But I think long-term we need to look at how are we engaging young people? How are we employing young people? How are we adding diversity, equity, and inclusion to an industry that hopefully is just going to continue to grow? You know, I believe uh, Sally Jewell, when she was Interior Secretary um, during the Obama administration, had discuss possibly coming up with a, a 21st century version of the Civilian Conservation Corps. And, and certainly that'd be one way to get um, uh, more youth and diversity engaged in the national park system. And um, short of that, we've had the um, Recreation Environmental Learning Centers in the national park system, the organizations like um, Nature Bridge or um, the North Cascades Institute that were another way to engage youth and get them involved in in the outdoors, either uh, through science or through recreation programs or whatnot. And unfortunately, they've had to largely shut down this year because of the pandemic. And so I'm just wondering if if anybody in Congress today is is, um, thinking about carrying a similar initiative forward. Yeah, so there's a couple bills um, right now that would that would uh, improve the hiring process for core workers and invest more money in the CCC concept. So we're really excited about those. And I think what ORR is focused on is how do we package up these really important bills and concepts, a lot of things that we've been talking about for years, and get them done in an end-of-the-year recreation package uh, during a lame duck, hopefully, So we've got things like the SOAR Act and Recreation Not Red Tape, the CCC bills, um, some uh, DEI bills like Outdoor Access for All or Transit to Trails that really, I think, are more important now than ever with what we're seeing with COVID, which is the overcrowding, overpopulated areas that need 
perhaps better recreation management tools. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, some communities who can't outdoor or who can't access out the outdoors at all. So how do we uh, fix some of the management policies? It doesn't cost money, but there needs to be a little bit more transparency in where visitor usage is high, um, where visitor usage is low. There needs to be more equity and uh, investments we're making in the outdoor spaces. Obviously, the agency I think staff need some support at this point. They're on the front lines every day sure. um, and probably exhausted in some cases yeah. um, uh, that have, have seen high use. So ORR has been working pretty hard on all these concepts. And what we're seeing now is that if you help streamline the permitting system, if you invest in the next generation of you know, young people working on our parks and federal lands, and if you have better management tools for recreation that are more transparent, um, we can solve a lot of issues at the same time. And there's not a cost to those things. This is just bills that make sense, right? So looking forward to getting a recreation package across. And some of these bills have already uh, passed through the House committee, um, have had hearings in the Senate. So they're pretty far along. And, and we think there's a great opportunity to get some of them across the finish line at the end of this year, which will help businesses, help access, and certainly help uh, the next generation of, of outdoor enthusiasts. We've been talking today with Jessica Turner, the Executive Director of the Outdoor Recreation Roundtable, and Lindsay Davis, the organization's Vice President, about how the coronavirus pandemic has impacted the outdoor recreation industry. Ladies, it's uh, been great talking with you today. There's some uh, serious issues that uh, um, hopefully um, your industry can weather and come back stronger. Again, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having us. Outdoor Afro was created in 2009 by a woman named Rue Mapp. She saw the importance of connecting more people from the Black community to nature and to the many benefits of being outdoors. To talk with us more about this organization, its impact, and the upcoming Glamp In fundraiser is Outdoor Afro's Communications Director, Janita Castro. Hi, Janita. Welcome to The Traveler. Thank you so much for having me, Lynn. I'm so excited to be here. Everyone can and should be able to enjoy public lands, hiking trails, parks, and natural areas. But historically, the number of Black Americans who do so is low. This is changing due in large part to the work of Outdoor Afro and other like-minded organizations. Tell me more about your mission and what you are achieving. Well, Outdoor Afro was created to create and inspire Black connections and leadership in nature. And when Rue Mapp created Outdoor Afro back in 2009, she saw a need to connect with others who love to enjoy the outdoors as she did as a kid growing up in, in California and through her years of adulthood of just loving to, to bike and swim and fish and all of those things that we love about nature. And what she realized quickly was that it wasn't that there was a lack of Black folks doing these things in the outdoors. It was a lack of visual representation of Black people enjoying the outdoors in the way that that we do. And so she was determined to change that visual representation when she created Outdoor Afro. And she did that by writing a whole lot um, of 
of content and blogs and articles about what she loved in the outdoors. And then she decided to reach out to the community and said, who loves this as much as I do? And she had an overwhelming response. And she decided, I need to make this more accessible, Outdoor Afro more accessible to people all around the country. And she enlisted the very first Outdoor Afro volunteer leadership team where there were 13 individuals all across the country who put on events once a month from, again, all those things, hiking, biking, fishing, swimming. And that leadership team has now grown to nearly 90 leaders across 30 states where we connect about 40,000 people in person in a non-pandemic year in person um, to all sorts of events. So it has been just a beautiful thing to be a part of. Now, you mentioned leadership, and that obviously is a huge uh, element of your program. You select some 65 people every year to join your team of leaders. What are they charged with, and how does someone become a leader with Outdoor Afro? Well, I was uh, originally a leader in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, and I started the community here. And I always tell people it was the hardest interview process I've ever done. And I have worked for Fortune 500 companies and public companies, but I will tell you the Outdoor Afro leadership interview was uh, first an application. It was number of reference checks that were actually called. It was a Skype interview. It was a social media background check. And so it's not an easy um, position to get. And this is a volunteer position which always continues to amaze me um, that so many people apply. And, and we turn down a lot of people. We turn down about 70% of the people who apply to be a volunteer leader. And so we really have the best of the best leadership across the country. And what I love about Outdoor Afro leaders is that, you know, they're not all wildlife biologists or, you know, wilderness experts. These are you know, as Rue likes to say, the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. These are attorneys, they're preschool teachers, they're architects who happen to love building community and happen to love doing that in nature. This year, we happen to have 90 leaders, and so we've grown um, a little bit every year. And the majority of our leaders, about, I would say about 60% continue year after year, but they do have to reapply every year as people's lives change and, and their things change. And what they're tasked to do, those leaders, are to hold one event per month in the community that they live in, to write up that event and to post that event and to share with their community the photos, right, the visual representation of people Black people doing all these nature-loving things in the outdoors, and that's part of what we ask our leaders to do. The other thing we ask leaders to do is come to our annual leadership training, which this year was held virtually in April, but it is an annual training where all the leaders are required to come to from all across the country. We share expertise with them. They share expertise with each other. Our partners are involved, and we they learn more about our partners, and the partners learn more about the leaders, and it's just a wonderful place for us to, to reconnect after a year of so many activities and, and events and just get rejuvenated for the following year of Outdoor Afro events and leaders all across the country. Now, you mentioned the one event per month that the leaders are required to do. Do they have any trouble recruiting folks to participate? Not at all. You know, when there is a new 
uh, a new community that starts. It sometimes takes some time to get traction going. And this is because we're asking a lot of people. We're asking people to maybe go somewhere they've never been before, do something maybe they have never done before with someone they've never met before. And so our leaders are trained to create community in a way that is open um, and compassionate and welcoming, but that does take some time to build when you think about all the things you're asking somebody to do that you've never met before. But once the community gets started, events can be fully, let's say, sold out. There's no fee, but full very quickly, and there's lots of wait lists that happens. In, our own, in my own city of Charlotte, I believe one of the leaders had to do three different sunset kayaking events because they were so popular they kept getting full so he just kept adding one every every week just to just to um to meet the demand and so once people are ingrained with the outdoor after community where they live there's usually no issue getting people to come out you mentioned hiking biking fishing kayaking what other kind of outdoor activities do um, your team of leaders create and facilitate? So if you can think of it, we probably have done it. Um, so those things that you mentioned, there's been um, archery, trail running, oh, kite flying is always a fun, popular one. Apple picking, stuff for that it's more kid-friendly. There are re- Christmas wreath making is a hugely popular one in the Bay Area that was started years and years ago. It's an annual event. There's camping trips. There's backpacking trips. I mean, I could go on and on. Uh, I think they've done, there's some, there's some hunting trips as well. Fishing, I think we mentioned. I mean, anything under the sun. Our leaders are super creative. And since each leader is, you know, a different person, they have things that they love to do. Um, Gardening is a big one for many leaders, especially in this time. Rock climbing, yoga, meditation. They keep coming to me, Lynn. (laughs) And even during this time, uh, we've done virtual events. We've done, um, you know, how to start a garden and bird watching, how to bird watch. There have been virtual um, scavenger hunts that that leaders have done so virtual camping trips i mean it's it's amazing to see what leaders what leaders do now promoting these outdoor experiences is a huge component of your mission and it goes hand in hand with environmental stewardship your organization believes it's changing the face of conservation talk a little bit about that sure you know it's really important for people to feel connection in whatever cause that is being talked about, right? So, you know, we, for example, we have, we get, a, we get people reaching out to us, organizations reaching out to us, and they'll say, hey, we have this cleanup day. Would your organization like to come and help with this, this cleanup activity? And one of the things our leaders are always trained to ask and think about is, well, have we ever recreated on that land? Have we ever been invited to participate or have an event on that land? If not, then why we should be invited just to clean it up, right? So when we think about environmental conservation and stewardship, you're going to care for something that you feel that you're a part of, that you feel that you are welcome to. And so when we say we're changing the face of conservation, when we are introducing people to different activities, um, different trails, different parks, different um, different places. 
that are nature related across the country, you're then going to care more about that park, that trail, that place, and what happens to it. And then you're going to maybe vote for policy that protects that park, that trail, that place. And so, yeah, we are changing the face of conservation because the more people love something, the more they're going to take care of it. I understand that you incorporate Black history in all or most of your activities. Can you give some examples of how you do that? Yes. So one of the things that's very unique about Outdoor Afro is that exact point is that, yes, we are a group that does do hiking and does do the activities, but we do like to infuse Black history in, in nearly everything that we do. We activated over Thurgood Marshall's, I think it was an um, anniversary of Thurgood Marshall, and all the leaders across the country did an event within a certain time frame. And during our our events, we talked about the life and the history of Thurgood Marshall and gave facts to the group to share and to talk about how Thurgood Marshall impacted the African-American community. If we're doing an event nearby, a lot of our leaders will research the Black history of that land, which sometimes is really hard to find. As we know, Black history has sometimes been buried or erased. So what was here on this land before we were here? And what does that look like? What happened here? And what kind of Black history can we pull out of this space that we're in that we're going to be enjoying that day? If there is a, um, a certain historical moment that's taking place in a certain month or for Black History Month where we talk more, make some, some more dedicated events to talk about um, certain people that lived in that area that, that you're doing the event at. I mean, there's so many different ways to do that. And even sometimes if maybe we're doing a trip, maybe leaders doing a trip where they can't find that Black history, well, what's a, what's a great Black history fact of the day? that we can share during the event. So there's so many ways to do that. And some are really acti activated from the entire Outdoor Afro Leadership community. Sometimes leaders do it themselves in their individual cities and, and where they are. And sometimes, again, it's looking up a, a Black history fact and sharing that with the group. And it's a way to keep grounded and connected to who we are and what we're doing and why we do this work. One of your many partnerships is with the National Park Service. Can you tell me more about that partnership? And do you have any examples of how your work is impacting policy in parks or protected areas? The National Park Service has been um, a great supporter of Outdoor Afro, and we have done different events over the years with them. Uh, one year we did Outdoor Afro celebrating African-Americans in the National Parks Day and, and some other um, local things we've done with them in D.C. And as it relates to policy, you know, Outdoor Afro, we do have an office in D.C. because we wanted to be closely related to advocacy and being able to have our, our voices heard when it comes to different, um, different policy initiatives. And so over the past few years, Outdoor Afro as an organization has gone to the Hill and has um, testified in front of different committees about Confederate monuments and why they should stay out of federal land. We have met with different representatives from all over the country to talk about the importance of the Land Water Conservation Fund, LWCF. RUMAP has written a number of op-eds supporting LWCF. And for those who don't know, the Land Water Conservation Fund is the, the pot of money that is used 
locally really um, for trails and bike lanes and parks that are near and dear to all our homes and our hearts. And so that was folded in with the Great American Outdoors Act, which was recently passed. And so Outdoor Afro has had a role in, in having our voices heard on the Hill um, and also advocating for these policies and these acts to be passed. How have the Black Lives Matter movement and America's more serious discourse about systemic racism impacted your organization? So this has always been, um, you know, Outdoor Afro is a Black-owned, Black-led organization. And it has always been very important for us to stand with Black Lives Matter. They're our lives. And when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, one of the things that came up specifically for Rue is how do we engage and how do we activate? And we decided, and Rue decided, what we do best at Outdoor Afro is that we do nature. And so Outdoor Afro organized a series of healing hikes that each leader did across the country. And the healing hikes were a way for Outdoor Afro to gather community together in spaces that felt safe and that felt healing. And to do what so many people have done before us is to gather in community and, you know, go go walk in the woods, go be angry, go scream, go cry, go do all those things that you need that maybe you can't do in your day-to-day life because you have to go to the office and you have to put on a face and you have to not talk about your feelings and what's going on. And, and Elder Apple really held that space for people in order to heal in the way that we could provide. And that's what we continue, that's what we continue to do even during these times. Pandemic times, uprising times, is still gather our community, whether it's in person or online, to say we see you and we hear you and we're here for you and we're here to heal together. Um, And we'll continue to do that in in the spirit of joy and liberation and restoration. And that's one of the things that Glamping Gala is about. It's about you know, lifting up Black joy in nature. I want to talk a little bit more about that um, in just a few moments, but um, I wanted to go back to the pandemic, to COVID. You mentioned some of your leaders doing online gardening instruction. I was just curious to see overall, has COVID slowed down leader-initiated outdoor activities or has it enhanced them? I would say that it has shifted some of them there was an initial slowdown as I think for everyone when we just weren't sure what was happening and what we were expected to do. Should we, should we continue? Should we not? And, and Outdoor Afra held, held, held the line to, you know, follow local guidelines and federal guidelines, whatever they were at the moment. And, and so once that, once I think, we got a handle on some things and, and things changed, you know, per city. People are doing things that, that feel comfortable to them. Some leaders will be doing paddleboarding, kayaking events where social distancing is really easy when you're out on the water in a big kayak or a canoe. Um, some are doing socially distanced hikes. Some are feeling better to do virtual events and holding online yoga or online meditation classes or events. So it really has just shifted the way people are doing the work. And I think that 
again, what we've seen is a creativity of leaders in the need that people still want to gather. And that could be, again, in person, safely or online, but still the need to be around other people that have the same desires to connect with nature in, in the way that they do. So it's been really, I don't I want to say fun, but it, it's been really wonderful to see people engaging in the ways that feel good for them. This is Lynn Riddick, and I'm speaking with Janita Castro from Outdoor Afro. After this short break, she'll tell us about the organization's annual fundraiser. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. This is Lynn Riddick, and I'm back with Janita Castro, Communications Director of Outdoor Afro. Let's talk about your Glampin fundraiser. This is your sixth year. Tell me about the event, how you did it the previous five years, and how you're going to do it this year. Thanks, Lynn. Yeah, so Glampin Gala is a, is a really fun and exciting event, um, and We've done it years um, past in person at the Oakland Museum. And it is a beautiful event that brings together different culture icons, people that are just, um, that love nature, some outdoor industry professionals. And it really is a place to celebrate the successes of Outdoor Afro in the past year and also highlight and honor leaders of the outdoor industry. And during that time, we honor a leader of the year, one of the volunteer leaders of the year of Outdoor Afro. We honor a partner of the year, and we also honor a Lifetime Achievement Award winner. In the past, um, Betty Reed Soskin, Ranger Betty, has been a Lifetime Achievement Award winner. Carolyn Finney has been a Lifetime Achievement Award winner. And this year, we'll be honoring Phil Henderson. So it's just a great opportunity for people to get together. Now this year, we are doing a broadcast, as most events we know have all gone virtual. And so it's a great opportunity to bring other people into the fold, right? At Oakland Museum, we had a capacity of 250 people. Now we have no capacity, right? There's unlimited capacity, I guess I should say. And anybody, that's what I meant to say, we have unlimited capacity and anybody can join us. And so we're excited for that opportunity. And this event is gonna be hosted by Shelton Johnson, 
who is the author of Gloryland. We're going to have um, Boots Riley, who is a director and an actor um, from The Coup. He, he directed and wrote the movie Sorry to Bother You. He'll be joined along Davey D and Paul Miller. And we'll be talking about Black men in nature from the block to the backcountry. We're going to have some uh, uh, some performances by dancers, a live art auction, and lots of different opportunities for people to engage. I wanted to ask you some details about some of your participants, but going back to Shelton Johnson, um, many may remember him from the Ken Burns documentary, The National Park's America's Best Idea. How would you describe his influence in connecting more Black Americans to outdoor spaces? Well, you know, Shelton Johnson has been just an, an icon in the industry. Um, and he from, he's from Detroit and grew up as a lover of documentaries himself and, and all things nature related. And one of the things that Shelton has done is ensured that if there are children out there who love the idea of, park, of being a park ranger, they have someone that they can look up to, especially Black children, and say, hey, I can wear that uniform because he wears that uniform. Um, his in- interpretation skills, his desire, and his success in making sure that the Buffalo Soldiers are not forgotten are one of Shelton's, I think is going to be one of his long-lasting legacies. And he is just a wonderful friend of Outdoor Afro, and we are so honored and grateful to have him as part of the host. But he, I believe, he has really changed what it means to be a ranger and for other, for young Black children to look up at him and go, hey, I can do that too, is will be something that, that will live with him forever. And I don't know if we mentioned that he is currently still a park ranger at Yosemite, correct? He is. And he is, like you mentioned, an expert on Buffalo Soldier history. He is, yes. He does um, a, a one-man show, actually, about the Buffalo Soldiers, which he he, play, he interprets and plays the Buffalo Soldier. Um, it's, it's really wonderful to watch and to see. You mentioned the other participants being Boots Riley, writer, rapper, film producer, director, and he's going to be interviewed, is that correct, by Davey D, who's a hip-hop journalist and historian and radio personality. And you mentioned Paul Miller. Are these men you said um, are probably going to be talking about Black men in nature, or what do you think they might be talking about? Yeah, I think, you know, our expectation is that they'll be talking about what outside, outdoors, nature, what those things mean to them through their eyes. They'll be talking about how maybe sometimes the outdoors is a double standard for folks and what that looks like and feels like, what it means to be, you know, black and outside in their bodies and what that, especially during this time, what that feels like to them. And they'll also be talking about how nature fuels their creative spirit. These three men are all artists and they'll share how they use nature you know, to do some of the things that they do, whether it, it's write a script or DJ or write lyrics. I think everybody will find it very fascinating and interesting to listen to. It's a perspective that we don't usually get. Tell me a little bit more about Phil Henderson, who's going to be receiving the Lifetime Achievement Award. 
Phil Henderson has been an amazing inspiration to so many of us at Outdoor Afro and to so many people uh, around the world. He's worked for Knowles, which is a national outdoor leadership school for more than 20 years, teaching people how to whitewater, kayak, canoe, raft, backpack, backcountry ski, rock climbing, all through the world, all through the United States, in Kenya and Tanzania. He has completed so many expeditions. One of the things that Phil did a couple years ago in 2018 was that he led a group of outdoor Afro leaders up Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. He was the master leader for that event. He helped all those all the leaders train, make sure they stayed motivated, um, make sure that they that they reached their own personal summit in, on Kilimanjaro, and has been an inspiration, as I mentioned, to to so many as a mountaineer. Um, he was a member of the North Face National Geographic Everest Educational Expedition. I mean, he has just done so many incredible things and broken a lot of barriers within the outdoor industry. And, and he'll share why this Lifetime Achievement Award from Outdoor Afro is so important to him and, and what it means to him. And so I, I, I hope you join in. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't miss it. He's going to be fantastic. Sounds great. Outdoor Afro's annual fundraiser Glampin is Saturday, September 12th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. How do people sign up? They can go to OutdoorAfro.com and click on the homepage banner. It'll take you right into the link to RSVP. The event is free, but we want to know that you're coming, so come by and RSVP. You can check out our Outdoor Afro Facebook, our YouTube page the day of. We'll be streaming from both of those places. But the easiest way is to go to OutdoorAfro.com and just click on the homepage banner, and it'll take you right to the RSVP page. Janita, I want to thank you for your time today. I wish you a successful Glampin 2020 and much continued success with Outdoor Afro. Thank you so much, Lynn. And thanks, everyone, for taking the time to listen. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we're going to kick off a series of occasional features on parks you might want to add to your bucket list. Have you ever heard of, let alone considered, a trip to Parashant National Monument? We'll tell you where it is and why you might want to consider a visit. Until then, this is Kurt Repencheck for National Parks Traveler. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. Find out more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.